Paradise in Hell, a look back at Saturday Night Live with your hosts, Matt and Keith. Brought to you by Lion's Den Audio Theater. Like and subscribe to Lion's Den Audio Theater for more Lion's Den goodness. And here are your hosts, Keith and Matt. Saturday Night Live, Season 3, Episode 18, starring Steve Martin. Originally aired on April 22, 1978. Hello and welcome to SN Hell. My name is Keith. With me as always, my good buddy Matt. Hello, Matt. Hello. The Jake to my Elwood, if you will. I will. <laughs> We're not going to take too long in our big crazy intros tonight. Uh, it's an iconic episode of Saturday Night Live. We have with us tonight uh, in the third chair for the third time, double threes, we have Rebecca. Hello, Rebecca. Hello, Keith. Hello, Matt. Hi. Steve Martin tonight joins Buck Henry in the Five Timers Club. And uh, contrary to how my memory is, it, he hasn't been uh, on Saturday Night Live five times this year. Uh, this is his third time in one year. I don't think anyone else does three hosting gigs in a year. But uh, put Steve as the second member of the Five Timers Club. Some of his episodes have been weaker than his legacy might say. I do think he's a suitable second entry into the five timers based on the history of the show. Uh, what do you guys think? No doubt. At this point in time, Steve Martin's stand-up career is white hot. His audience had doubled since he'd first appeared on the show. He credits a lot of that to the show. The show, of course, credits a lot of their great history to Steve Martin. I have seen this episode a number of times over the years. It had been probably about probably 10 years since I've seen it the last time. Good one to really break down what Saturday Night Live could be at the time. We'll see how that plays out as we go through the show. Musical guest tonight, the Blues Brothers, uh, Jake and Elwood, a.k.a. uh, John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd. They had been doing this at their, their bar at the post shows they'd also been warming up the audience as well uh, on occasion so we go to the cold open it starts with paul schaefer in a control room he's doing his don kirshner impression again and he's introducing this blues act that he was introduced to many a few years before he drops a ton of names as kirshner is known to do and then throws it to the blues brothers aka joliet jake blues and elwood blues they perform an upbeat song called Hey Bartender. I really love this performance. Uh, there's something still new about the act. Belushi's stage mannerisms in particular, not as refined as it will go on to be. Um, maybe it's a confidence thing. Maybe it's just nerves doing sort of the show before the hometown crowd for the first time on the air. I don't know. There is another recording of them doing this song about six months later, and you can see at that point that the act had really evolved to what we come to know as the Blues Brothers. I, I think it's slightly less commitment to the character that, than we're going to eventually see. Um, yeah, I, I was big on this. I thought it was really high energy, good way to open the show, certainly breaking from format, but uh, I didn't have a problem with that. Honestly, I really enjoyed this. It then cuts back to Paul Schaefer. He gives his second live from New York as Don Kirshner. It's so interesting you said that uh, because I didn't because uh, I'm I publicly don't like the Blues Brothers, uh, but I thought you know this one uh, I thought yeah this this seems a little better I found it the obnoxiousness really toned down and uh, you know just pretty much everything you just described resulted in me enjoying it a little more than I would have. Uh, I enjoyed it. I thought it was a good way to open the show. And, uh, you know, I will agree that Belushi 
Uh, stage mannerisms, he, his little bit of dancing and things were a little bit awkward, but not purposely awkward, I didn't find, um, if that was a, and, uh, but I enjoyed it. Um, I should have stated beforehand, though, uh, where we come from with the Blues Brothers. I am a fan. Matt is not typically a fan. And Rebecca has, you have virtually no frame of reference, do you? Am I wrong with you? Like, you knew they existed. Yes, I knew they existed. I knew they became popular with the with the crowd that watched us all the time. And uh, I think they did the Blues Brother movie, didn't they? Yeah, two of them, yeah. Well, yeah, so I know they existed and I knew they became pretty popular enough to feature their own film, but I hadn't truly seen them do um, any of the music or whatnot. Um, You know, it was just one of those things that, you know, you hear growing up as a kid. Off to the monologue. Steve Martin comes down to home base. He's in his uh, gleaming whites, as they say. He talks about uh, people asking where he gets his ideas for his material. He says just from regular things that happen in life, like. When someone calls first thing in the morning and says they've assassinated his penguin. He then talks about being typecast as a comedian because he is a comedian and says he spends time doing Shakespeare at various summer festivals. He also talks about going to France and there's a good bit about uh, visiting uh, the cathedral at Chartres, I think he said, and uh, having a spray paint can. (laughs) He asks for a volunteer from the audience to show his magic trick. Bill Murray comes up as John Aldris. Martin does some of his pickpocketing magic. It's very obvious pickpocketing, and it eventually turns into Martin uh, basically beating up Bill Murray and trying to take his clothes from him. Steve Martin's monologues have been hit or miss for me. This one was a big hit. I thought everything was was on fire there. The energy was great. He uh, he didn't stray too far. He did get his silly stuff in there, which which is fine, but he didn't go too far the way i found he has on a couple of other monologues a thumbs up on the monologue for this one yeah i i agree keith i enjoyed it his timing was good on point and it was funny i enjoyed it me too pretty good those gleaming whites are remarkable uh good delivery sharp jokes i really like the the spray paint joke and uh when he took out the note to read the note that was good bad magic is hilarious uh, it, it felt, I'm not going to lie, it felt a smidge long there toward the end for me. Uh, but I really like that physical stuff with Bill. Great payoff. Yeah, and I thought Bill was great as well, just as a little side note. We now go to our first commercial of the night. It's Hey You, the perfume from One Night Stands. Matt and I have already seen this. We both gave it big thumbs up, as did our third chair of the night, Chili. Rebecca, the floor is over to you. What did you think of Hey You? It was fun. It was a, a good laugh. I enjoyed it for what it was, yeah. I don't know how I uh, felt about it before, but I, I wrote down this kind of like a style. I call it Playboy magazine humor. Didn't It didn't kill me. It felt too much like a real ad for a while. Then it ended kind of like with a joke I'd expect to see in Playboy magazine, which I mean is fine, but it's not like funny. I don't remember exactly what you said. I do remember you being quite impressed with Gilda's performance. Yeah, well, she's generally just good. She's good. And it's, it is nice seeing her play, you know, grown women. And adults, yeah. Not we children go, or the elderly. So we now go to the uh, Festronk Brothers uh, again. Oh, uh, Rosie Schuster, I think, or Ann Beats. One of those two wrote the, uh, some combination wrote the Hey You, I think. We now go to the Festronk Brothers. It's Dan, Marilyn, Suzanne Miller, and Steve Martin are the minds behind this one. And it features the Czechoslovakian Festronk Brothers, Your Tuck, played by Dan, and Heyorg, Georg, or George, played by Steve. When they enter, they get a huge ovation. They talk about two American foxes who had the hots on them who are going to be coming by. 
Their house is a mess, so they need their portable Czechoslovakian vacuum. They pull it out. It's huge, and it doesn't work very well. Doorbell rings, and the brothers think it's the foxes, but it's actually Garrett as they're swinging American buddy Cliff. He invites them to a party, but they won't go because they have two women coming by. The guys tell Cliff that the girls are busy getting their birth control from the Statue of Liberty. Cliff explains to the guys that they've been stood up. And the guys are quite sad. Garrett tells them that they have to be a little cooler in their demeanor. The two fellows speak Czech to each other. Dan's fake Czech, incidentally, is awesome. There is then another doorbell ring. And the guys, who are sad because the foxes aren't coming, do a sad version of their walk. Lorraine and Gilda come in as the foxes. Cliff is shocked. The guys are delighted. They all go party at the apartment bar. For me, over and above, this was definitely the best fest drunk yet. A lot of the creepiness in the first one and the awkwardness in the second one were gone. I thought everyone was on point. I love the idea of Cliff sort of navigating them through the world over here, um, the world of dating. <laughs> it was just really good. The energy was through the roof, including the audience. I also like that they uh, they kind of toned it down a little. It was too weird and creepy before, uh, a little too like predatory. Now they're a, they're a little goofier. They're making fun of themselves a bit more, uh, which is good. It's really funny the way they say fox bar. Uh, they have the gyrations down really well. I did take note of that. Uh, they're definitely practicing. And Dan's voice, as you kind of mentioned in particular, is a real winner. It went on for a while. I thought the Garrett stuff might have went on a little too long, but whatever. Uh, what do I know? I also didn't think they did enough with the girls. There wasn't really a joke with the girls. It just kind of came in, and they're like, oh, they're here. Sketch over. Yeah, just the two wild and crazy guys. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a bit of a classic, I think. Um, I find it funny that Garrett kind of broke during the Czechoslovakian talk back and forth. <laughs> You can kind of see him in the background, like with his head down. Apparently, uh, somewhere between the last Steve Martin one and this Steve Martin one, there had been one written with just Dan doing the character. Uh, and there's a recording of that. And uh, it, funny bits, but it, it, it's definitely missing the second brother. I can't even imagine. It would just be obnoxious if there was just one of them. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. We now go to Theodoric of York. And this is uh, Tom Davis wrote this one. We are met with a crawl and a narration by don pardo and it talks about barbers being sort of the doctors and the wise men of the village back in the middle ages we then flash back to england in 1303 and steve martin is playing theodoric dan comes in for his annual haircut and bloodletting theodoric's assistant is <laughs> broom gilda played by gilda and she goes and cuts dan's hair with the hedge clippers as theodoric does some bloodletting Jane then carries in her daughter, Lorraine, who is ill. She says that she's followed Theodoric's instructions and has mixed powder of staghorn, gum of Arabic with sheep's urine and applied it in a poultice to her face. And she was also buried. She also buried her up to the neck in the marsh. But still, Lorraine is ill. Theodoric orders some more bloodletting. He talks about how things have changed and modern medicine is no longer uh, all about believing demons are, are, are out and about making people sick but rather that Lorraine likely has an imbalance of humors caused by either a dwarf or a frog living in her stomach. John enters as a hunchback, wheeling in Bill, who has broken legs. Bill is kind of doing a version of his honker character. Theodoric demands bloodletting, but Bill is already bleeding. So they tie Bill upside down by his ankles, and uh, Broom Gilda puts leeches on his forehead. 
Dan doesn't have time for a worming, and he has to go, so he pays Theodoric with a goose, and he leaves. Theodoric checks in with Lorraine with a Galadrius bird, which uh, if the bird looks at your face, you're going to die. If it looks at your feet, <laughs> you're going to live, I think. The bird does neither. They do a little bit of ad-libbing, and then the bird flies off into the audience. Lorraine dies. Jane is devastated. She calls Theodoric a charlatan. Theodoric addresses the audience saying maybe he's just wrong to follow the ways of the world and should maybe adopt some sort of scientific method and be a leader in the field of science. But then it gives it the big nah. This is an excellent sketch. Um, It had most of the cast. It was beautifully written. Steve was excellent. The cast was excellent. I laughed a lot. You know, in in, in these days where people are doubting science a lot, I I wonder, like, is this what they want to go back to? Great pun with Broom Gilda. Bill hanging upside down was funny as hell. I I have nothing bad to say about this sketch. It went on long, but it carried me all the way through. I got a big kick out of this one. Yeah, me too. I thought this was uh, really very super good. Uh, So many good lines in it. Like when's the last time I saw you when your wife died? And the uh, <laughs> constant lines like, "Well, he's, you're right." Steve Martin was terrific. Uh, every his references to blood were so like gleefully irresponsible. Let's give her another bloodletting. Take two pints. <laughs> Bill Murray was great. I really liked the line, uh, knowing that he was at the festival of the Virgil Vernal Equinox. <laughs> Doing that too much yeah. meat. Uh, <laughs> He said you'll feel a lot better after a good bleeding. (laughs) (laughs) Saying who's the barber here when questioned. Oh, it was just absurd and hilarious. Uh, Bill's thrashing broken legs. (laughs) And uh, the cut to the wide shot. They definitely know that bird was flying away, uh, Mm. which seemed a little uh, weird and dangerous to me. But whatever, what do I know? (laughs) Literally just dying was hilarious. Great sketch. One of the best we've seen in a very long time. Yeah, I thought it was. Um, I thought it was funny. Um, this uh, goes back to, you know, brings me back to my university days because I was a history major. So, you know, yes, these things happened. People thought these things would help. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I had to learn about the humors and what they thought they were and what they thought they caused, and um, and I thought it was all quite funny. Um, yeah, Bill hanging upside down by his ankles. Um, hilarious to imagine that someone with broken legs uh, would be hung upside down. (laughs) Uh, And then the bird, I think the bird should have, they were planning on the bird flying away faster than it did. Oh, okay. (laughs) I said, that's my take on it anyway. I think like they were taking the cage off and then I think he was supposed to fly away right away. And then he didn't. So they're like, uh, uh, he's not looking at anything. Uh, uh, uh. So I thought that was funny. I wonder if they had a trainer in the audience, like with his finger up or something. I'm thinking so. It was a good sketch. I liked it. We now go to Dancing in the Dark. And I think I think I read somewhere that this was kind of a Marilyn Miller idea. Um, I mean, it's obviously not written and it's it's choreographed. But uh, anyway, uh, so Steve and Gilda are at a dance club. They spot each other across the room and are immediately attracted to each other. They come together and they start dancing this romantic waltz that takes us through part of the studio. It's apparently a takeoff of a Fred Astaire, Sid Charisse number from the uh, movie Bandwagon. It's certainly the music they use. 
And I want to mention there's a uh, YouTuber named Brian Lee who's put the two routines in split screen so you can see them together. So uh, Steve and Gilda awkwardly dance from the bar over to another stage. They perform awkwardly again, and then they make their way back. Um, this is hilarious. It's become one of the highlight reel clips for, for good and bad reasons. You know, there was a real affection. Uh, it shows in their in their goofy little way. A lot of funny little bits, uh, definitely a, a break from the norm. They did work with a choreographer named Pat Birch. Now, there's definitely bits where they're not being serious, but apparently there were parts where they were being serious, and they knew that their own natural sort of awkwardness, clumsiness, lack of experience would make it work comedically. Um, so, yeah, I, I really enjoyed this. It was a definite break from everything else different and the two of them were obviously having an awesome time doing it so at this point in the episode i said this is my episode keith says no but i don't know (laughs) if matt knew uh i used to be a dancer and i love musical theater and i love old-timey movies and musicals so this reminded me of you know all of the old movies i used to watch literally i was like oh this could be any number of these movies it was just great it was choreographed just enough to let you know that they worked on it, but also just enough that they knew you knew they didn't know every step exactly. Um, you know, they would go in opposite directions at times, but I don't think that was on purpose because they think they were supposed to go together, but one forgot it was supposed to be the left foot and the other one put the right way. It was fun. It was uh, really enjoyable. You can tell that they enjoyed dancing with each other. Um, and that's important when, you know, when you're putting on a show of dance is like you have to see that they enjoy being with each other and and dancing um whether it's goofy or not like it makes a difference uh, to how it how it comes off to the audience and uh yeah they they had a real good time i think with it and i had a good time with it wow you guys loved this holy cow uh i thought it was okay it was cute it was different but uh i had no idea it was so famous i had no idea it would be so acclaimed, you know. Uh, I like some of the non sequitur absurd stuff, so why shouldn't there be room for charm and uh, a little bit of heart and a good comedy sketch between two professionals? Some of the history with this one comes years later. The day Gilda Radner passed away, uh, Steve Martin was actually hosting Saturday Night Live, so the word went around that that had happened. And rather than give a monologue, and obviously broken Steve Martin comes to the monologue thanks everyone for coming and throws to this clip so that's it gets super famous you know 10 years later i actually remember seeing that holy shit yeah yeah and and he's fighting like he's fighting back tears and it's legit you know um i think my father i I, like i saw that years and years like my dad must have taped that episode or something because i remember seeing this as a really young kid we're now off to weekend update we got a picture of Pat Nixon with a bowling ball. Jane says it's a gallstone. This one's brought to you by Cruelex. It's a men's grooming aid that promotes jock itch. Dan and Jane announce themselves as Dave and Jean. Quick picture of James Schlesinger, who is said to be the Ill- illegitimate father of Steve Martin. They do look alike. Lyndon Johnson joined uh, Jimmy Carter at the White House and. Johnson had already been dead. They talk about marijuana being sprayed with this deadly herbicide to see if the herbicide is as bad as they think it is. They sent Garrett uptown to get some uh, marijuana. Dan says they're doing their own test because 97% of their audience smokes it daily and they should give it a try. Garrett hands Dan the weed. Uh, Dan thinks the package is a little too light. Garrett says there's no seeds and stems. 
And Dan tells Garrett to go back uptown and get more, but Garrett's scared to go back. Dan says uh, you need a full ounce to test it and sends Garrett off. They do a bit about nasal contraceptives being tested in India. A Nazi official who either died or is on trial pleads, I didn't kill anyone, I was only giving orders. They go into a point-counterpoint about abortion, which is brilliant. And then there is a recent bulletin that Garrett Morris is dead. Best update of the season, the bit about Garrett cracked me up, both the beginning and then his announcement of being dead, considering less than five minutes had passed since he left. Point-counterpoint was on point. It was the best one yet. What I like about these is not only do the insults happen immediately, but these guys don't hold back with their extreme views on either uh, on either side of the spectrum. You know, uh, Jane says women will soon be in back alleys with plungers, vacuums, and coat hangers. And Dan says, why should I pay tax dollars so welfare tarts can have sex anytime they want with no regard to consequences? They're not holding anything back. Some of the other jokes were ho-hum, but whatever. There was enough in this weekend update for me to finally say this was a, a very good weekend update. And we're almost at the end of season three. That's where I sat on this. Uh, I'd love to hear what you guys say. Some of the things, the news points, I didn't get because I didn't really get the historical references. Probably due to my age, probably. But like, I didn't know who was actually dead and who was alive and how that was funny or whatnot. Um, so that kind of just flew over me. The picture of the energy minister, I actually thought for a second was just a picture of Steve Martin that they accidentally put up uh, before they made the joke. So my brain went there right beforehand. Co- uh, point and counterpoint. How are we still having the same debate today? This can happen this week on and on weekend on SNL. Like it could happen again um, due to what we're living through right now it's um and the abortion rights and whatnot i thought it was a good weekend update uh krulex is pretty funny uh unless he's like doing something like point counterpoint dan is useless uh and i I won't stop saying it because they won't stop fucking rolling him out there to be useless Uh, but he really did shine on that garrett sketch uh, piece where uh, he was buying the weed and said it looked a little light. I thought it was funny that 97% of the viewing audience smoked weed daily <laughs> and that to test the weed, you need a whole ounce. And uh, Garrett was really good uh, being nervous and then dying. That was hilarious. I also liked the nasal intercourse uh, joke. <laughs> and Jane actually <laughs> said, Millions of Americans watched Holocaust on TV. That's uh, a funny, weird thing to say. Yeah, and they ended with the hot topic. It was well done. You're absolutely right. The best one they've done this season. They finally got it together a bit. Have you seen Holocaust, Matt? No. It, it made a star of your boy, Michael Moriarty. I think that was his first. Hey, cool. Yeah. <laughs> Rebecca, you bring up a good point about that exact same point-counterpoint segment could be done, uh, would be done the same today. They wouldn't do it. True, that's I don't true. Think, that might, that might yeah. be the case um, yeah. because it's becoming touchy um, of yeah. this topic in many and both sides that they mm-hmm. probably wouldn't maybe touch it with a 10-foot pole. That's a good point, Keith. We now go to King Tut. We get Steve coming out as King Tut. He's, he's in a spotlight. He speaks seriously to the audience uh, about uh, the King Tut's treasures traveling across the country and about how a lot of things are being marketed. He says it's a shame that it's become so commercialized. He then goes into the famous song, the King Tut song, performed by Steve Martin and the Toots Uncommon. It's performed in an Egyptian-themed set 
Two women dancing, the SNL band are dressed accordingly. Steve Martin had written the song. He suggested to doing it on the show. He just thought he'd sing it with the band, but uh, Lorne Michaels took the suggestion and blew it up with all the extra accoutrements. We're, uh, we're kind of a surprise to Martin. Um, the highlight might be Lou Marini coming out of the sarcophagus in a gold <laughs> mummy costume to do the sax solo. Very famous segment, very famous song, uh, exceptionally performed. Yes, this was super funny. Uh, I'd seen it in all the best of DVDs. It's probably one of the early sketches that i've probably ever seen uh, just from reruns and and uh the compilations used to rent down at the video store the backup dancers were fantastic uh the song is so catchy uh it's just a, a good little theme gets stuck in your head a real earworm i loved it i always have three for three yeah i really enjoyed this i was wondering if this was the first time this was done because it's, you know, quite famous for anyone who knows SNL that I was like, is this the first time they've done this? Like, is this the episode where this happens? Yeah, it was really enjoyable. I loved the set. Uh, <laughs> loved the sex in the sarcophagus um, and the women going up and opening it up and then, then putting some, you know, offerings in front of him when they were ready to close him back up again. It was really fun. I really enjoyed this. Such a playful, catchy song. Um, and the dancing was good. Yeah, like really great. Good time. You know, there was controversy a few years ago, right? No. What's that? No, <laughs> yeah. no, no. What's that? Well, yeah. First, some students at Oregon College thought it was cultural appropriation and uh, didn't like how they were uh, marketing and uh, trying to make money off King Tut, which is exactly the point of the song. Anyway, they wanted to take an off their curriculum in a certain class. From what I can gather, that's the real big thing that happened. But then a few years later, there was just this random Twitter deluge calling the thing racist and accusing people of cultural appropriation. The, the funny part is that somebody seems to have traced the source back and it looked like somebody just started randomly complaining about people complaining about this sketch and, and, and kind of manufactured a fake outrage. I don't know how deep we need to go into it. I don't really want to. It's tough to buy in that people were actually mad about this one, especially if they listened to the words of the song. And uh, especially, especially if they saw Steve Martin's intro. It, it says what it is. It's anti-commercialism. You know, you've got to take, uh, I, I still think you have to take intent into an equation. You don't, you know, you can't disregard intent just because it doesn't fit your narrative. But um, I don't know. I, I do expect somewhere down the line that this will no longer be allowed on highlight reels. Yeah, that that's the point of it is that there's a <laughs> oh, people, people. Yeah, because they even put like a, a coffee maker or something as an offering in front of King Tut's sarcophagus during the sax solo. Like, obviously, there's no these coffee makers during Egyptian times, guys. Anything on that one, Matt? No, I mean, it's, it seems a little silly to me uh, like that. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm quite surprised. And it, it seems like, who I don't know, who's looking at these ancient 40-year-old shows? And, well, I guess us. Never mind. Yeah. <laughs> Our fan base. Um, sorry. 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 Yeah. No, and I mean, we, you know, we, we have called out Samurai Futaba um, and a few other things for it. But we haven't started any campaigns. <laughs> we now go to Love Story. Uh, Jane and John play Betty and Harold, a middle-aged couple in bed. 
Betty wakes uh, Harold up to tell him she's having an affair with a 72-year-old pharmacist named Mr. Lampton. Betty goes into some pretty raunchy details, and uh, Harold tells her that he's also been fooling around with a young woman named Peggy Ann Randolph. Jane uh, explains her, her daytime trysts with Mr. Lampton, where she goes to the pharmacy and he f- fills her prescriptions. Harold picks up his date across from the schoolyard, dressed like a Cub Scout, and they go into the woods and do it in a pup tent. Then it's revealed that they're telling each other this just to get each other into the mood. Um, they also do things like look at naked pictures of his parents. This was really good. When I saw John and Jane, I, I was worried about chemistry. But uh, they're pros, man. They uh, they work together excellently in this. Jane had a really funny voice. Sketch was funny. Bit of a twist at the end that made me laugh. Pretty simple. It really could have been on any show. It didn't need necessarily the Steve Martin one. Good, funny, dark, and definitely a tad twisted. I, I really like this one. Yeah, I thought it was a fun little sketch. Everyone has their thing, and especially, <laughs> you know, relationships. And uh, that was their thing. So it was a it was quite a little funny sketch. I, I, I enjoyed it for what it was worth. But uh out of everything that we've seen tonight so far, it was a little ho-hum. I didn't like it so much. I, I did enjoy using he fills my prescription as a euphemism for sex. Uh, but otherwise, I, I just didn't find it that funny. Uh, I wasn't sure where it was going, and I did, definitely didn't like it. I mean, maybe Rebecca has a point about the show being, like, too good up to this, and then this felt like the first clunker to me. I don't know. We now go for a Gary Weiss film, and this one features uh, the voice of Tony Basil. She calls Adolfo Shabadu Quinones. Both of these two were members of the Lockers, as I assume some of the performers we see later are. Uh, Basil asks some of her uh, hip hop buddies to dance to Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake. So we then get scenes of four ballerinas and four hip hop dancers uh, dancing to Swan Lake, and there's some bits with both groups together or mixed together. Um, I couldn't get the guy's names, but I'm pretty sure it's some of the lockers from season one, ep three. This was uh, interesting to see. It was neat. It was kind of cool to see, you know, hip hop guys, early hip hop guys dancing to Swan Lake. There have been much better Gary Weiss films, but there have been uh, much worse as well. So, uh, yeah, I was kind of I was okay with this. Me too. I thought it was fun. Uh, I liked it. I don't expect, you know, when uh, when Gary Weiss does his segments, I don't necessarily think they're going to be ha-ha funny. So I'm kind of trained to expect maybe something a little different. And it was good. And it was really fun. It was fun to watch. Again, this episode is for me. Another dance routine. Fun. I loved it. You know, I think being at the time, you know, nowadays it's kind of common for in media to see ballet and hip hop mixed together. But I think when this episode aired, it probably was one of the first. So many movies that have been done since like the early 90s where hip hop, a hip hop dancer gets falls in love with a ballerina and all that stuff. I think it probably was a little bit like eye opening for the audience. The one thing I didn't like was some of the cuts in the actual film. I thought, you know, they weren't really great edits. Choppy. <laughs> that <Yeah>. annoyed me. <laughs> but I, I liked this one a lot. I did. Do you remember the lockers, Matt, from season one, the Rob Reiner episode way, way back? Yes, I do. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. I mean, they were way, way, way ahead of their time. They had a robot blasting fire and stuff, you know, and doing hip, you know, hip hop stuff back then. This is our last Gary Weiss film ever. Yeah. I mean, there's wow. bits and pieces of Gary Weiss stuff, kind of, sort of. Um, but this is it. This is the end of the line for Gary Weiss. We first met him back at your favorite <laughs> the homeward bound video where people were meeting their loved ones at the airport ew yeah that was yeah. 
so this uh, after we finish season three, um, Matt and I and a bunch of the third chairs are going to go through the almost complete works of Gary Weiss for Saturday Night Live and give uh, pick out a few favorites along the way. And you know what? We're gonna for Chili's sake, we're gonna pick out a few least favorites as well. Oh yeah, good idea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Chili hated everyone he saw. We now go to Trough and Brew. Steve, Bill, Jane, and Garrett play business po- people, and they're talking about where they're gonna go for lunch. They choose to go to a new place uh, called the Trough and Brew. We cut to the Trough and Brew, and it's a, a chili hut where people eat chili from a trough and uh, drink beer from either a spout or a big bucket. Dan and John are eating from a trough when Lorraine comes by and dumps some more chili in the trough. This has, like, the whole cast and the crew and everyone, they're all in there eating from a trough with these little bibs on, drinking beer from the bucket. Belushi gets a ton of foam on his face. They then have to shut down the trough and brew for a half hour for a mandatory hose down. A huge cast on this one. There were writers ev- all over the place. Everybody was in. It looked like folks just wanted to eat from the trough. Um, nobody was really playing with irony. Uh, they were they were all quite serious. And, and the funny part is nobody really broke. And uh, in later seasons, people would be just unable to get through this. Really good sketch. Um, maybe they could have done more with it, or maybe it was bigger than it needed to be, but uh, I got a real kick out of it. Yeah, my first thought was, <laughs> gross. <laughs> but it was funny. Um, you know, when they talked about it in the uh, at the elevator, you know, you never know what you're going to get. Then they get to the restaurant, and it's literally a giant trough and barrels. Um, it was funny. They had their own little bibs on. Garrett was hilarious because he almost dived into the chili before he properly got his bib tied on, um, which I thought was great. Such dedication to doing this, the the bit. And then everyone getting hosed down with the water uh, at the end and they were all enjoying it. Like, like you said, I think people would probably break uh, today uh, if they did the same sketch, because they would just be like, this is so absurd and funny and, and have a good time with it. But they were so dead set on it and that it really it really went well yeah i thought this you know what i kept uh, thinking about uh, this one here uh, i thought it uh, reminded me of a sketch that they would do like in the late 80s like i, I would see kevin nealon in this sketch you know what i absolutely. mean absolutely absolutely yep. vibe of the humor i get like it's just so ridiculous that <laughs> these business people go and they're eating chili out of a trough and drinking <laughs> beer out of a bucket no fucking explanation talking about important shit and jane has her face in a trough of chili uh it's <laughs> yeah. just the sort of absurdism that i would have expected from those late 80s episodes uh and yeah it, w- it was pretty funny it didn't overstay its welcome it was just stupid for a minute mm-hmm. made me laugh and it was gone and in the late 80s, they probably would have beat it to death. Well, you know what I was thinking? In the late 80s, they would have done a pre-tape, sort of like the Cluck and Chicken or Happy Fun Balls. You know what I mean? It wouldn't yeah. have been live. Like, the audience was there. Like, the, you know, when they cut to the uh, when they cut to the Chiron of the audience, like, they were looking over the top right down on one of the troughs, you know. So <laughs> yeah. that, that made it. <laughs> now I have a Chiron, and this woman looked better in the ticket line. I'm not comfortable with that one. I don't know. We now go to the Nerd Science Fair, written by Rosie Schuster and Ann Beats. So it's, of course, Lisa, Todd, uh, Lisa and Todd together. They think they have a good chance at winning their contest because they have a science project called Dialing for Toast, where a phone has a little computer inside and it controls how dark the toast will be. 
They are worried, however, about Chaz the Spaz, played by Steve Martin. He's president of the Science Club, and he has a mystery top-secret project. Uh, Garrett joins them as Grant Robinson Jr. This is his first appearance. Uh, we'll see some more of Grant as, as we go on. He's a student from, uh, I think, another school. And he tries their stuff. Now, his project is all about static electricity, where he sticks two balloons to his chest after rubbing them against his hair. Martin comes over as Chaz the Spaz. This is Todd and Lisa's project, because he has a plutonium bomb. Todd says he could have made a plutonium bomb if he had the plutonium. Jane then comes in as Mrs. Loopner, bringing her world-famous egg salad sandwich for everyone. This is another funny nerd sketch. The banter between the two of them is awesome. I thought Garrett and Steve also made the show or made the sketch very strong. Steve is the we all know him. He's out there, the really arrogant nerd. And and Garrett is just the the, the really supportive good buddy nerd. I, I, I don't know. I like the dynamic. Jane, of course, amazing as well. All these catchphrases from when I was a kid, you know, being tossed around act your age not your shoe size and so funny i forgot to laugh these uh these characters were really starting to get to know and love and uh again yeah steve and garrett were excellent uh, compliments to them again another funny nerd sketch for me i also thought it was great i uh that could be a cartoon like they could uh they could have a whole little mini universe around these two everybody was really good in it i thought the funniest part of the sketch was garrett uh <laughs> rubbing the uh, balloons uh, on his chest and then just leaving them there with the static electricity and then continuing to hang out in the background (laughs) with his big balloon boobs. Uh, Yeah, and it had me cracking up. Yeah, I enjoyed it too. Um, Definitely a lot of catchphrases, you know, what you hear in the schoolyard for sure. And the other characters were on point. No, it, it was a, it was a good little sketch, and uh, Garrett was great in it. I, I have to say, he was really good. Do you know Rebecca? In grade twelve, Matt and I were partners in the science fair. Oh, really? Did you yes. guys? Know? Matt, you, you remember our science project? Yes, sir, I do. <laughs> what was it? Uh, we uh, test. We wanted to see the effects of uh, sleep deprivation. Uh, so I deprived myself of sleep for as long as I could and <laughs> tried to make the science fair poster absolutely exhausted. <laughs> to demonstrate. That's such a kid science fair project to be like, no, mom, dad, I have to stay up. It's science. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I remember Matt's uncle John got very mad at him. <laughs> very, I remember saying, Matthew, that's way too dangerous for a science project. <laughs> Do you know my meanwhile, project meanwhile, is? Chaz the Spaz has a plutonium bomb, you know. We got a good Go grade. We did well. We did well. Mm, my science fair project um, was when colored toilet paper was a thing. You get like pink and blue and purple to match your decor. You know, because late 80s, early 90s. And my science fair project was about how much longer it took for the colored toilet paper to disintegrate within the septic system. I won the environmental award that year. Go you. Awesome. Congratulations. That's a pretty brilliant idea, Matt. I don't know. Like, I think you just wanted to stay up because... Raw was on or something. And, <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe. Late Night with Conan O'Brien was Conan, really yeah. hot in 97, too. Yeah. <laughs> And it replayed the next day. I think that somebody asked me, like, how could you have watched Conan and Tom Snyder? Well, Conan replayed the next day earlier on a different channel. Yeah, like the Star Network. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
We now go to our second musical appearance or performance tonight, <laughs> the, the Blues Brothers. I Don't Know is the song they played. It's uh, got a bit of banter from Belushi and then some great uh, acroid with the harmonica. I, I'll be honest. I didn't love the song selection, but I really loved the performance. John was definitely more into the uh, Jake We Will Come to Know, and we do get some of the cartwheels. I, uh, I really liked this. thought it was great. And, and it actually, I should say it came probably at the perfect part of the show. I enjoyed the song, too. Um, I actually thought the placement of both music segments were really good in this episode. Having one at the beginning and one towards the end. Uh, For me, music is kind of the weird thing about SNL. I enjoyed having it bookend kind of the show. And they were it was a great song. I enjoyed it. Um, It was entertaining. Man, he can rock that harmonica, though. Boy, oh, boy. I I did appreciate the spacing of the songs a lot. It really gave all those good sketches so much room to breathe there was no disruption of the flow you know i don't know if it was a chicken and the egg thing like did they know that when they were doing it or was that just an unexpected side effect this is definitely still not my kind of music i mean not nearly as obnoxious as i thought it was going to be uh so it was fine and dan really can play a great harmonica i just don't like blues music not this kind of blues music. Like I, I, I'm no. okay with like some, uh, you know, the really guitar-y stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. But not like this. Not like this. And we now go to next week in review. Um, Jane, or not Jane, Lorraine as Maxine Universe hosts a show featuring three psychics who are reviewing predictions of the future. The idea is that uh, all news has already happened, and by predicting the future, you can also sum up the past is probably the easiest way I could say it. Jane, Steve, and Dan plays three psychics named Mitzi, Kokua, and Krieg, who have already predicted next week's news. Uh, Krieg predicts the disappearance of a nuclear dump. Mitzi thinks Debbie Boone will be kidnapped. And Steve predicts that the Pope will be cloned. Uh, and they get into a discussion about what the Pope's astrological sign will be. Uh, they then predict that they will re- receive a message re- from space, responding to a message that had gone up from NASA, which had some Chuck uh, Berry music on it, that the message from space is going to request more Chuck Berry. This was funny, not up to what the others were. The characters were really good and really wacky. The idea was a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, it's it's that period of the time where you can try something weird. And uh, this was definitely not not bad at all. I got a kick out of it, too. They all did so well at their weirdo psychic characters. I enjoyed it. It was a fun little sketch. Uh, The characters, they were great. Uh, Their little hand gestures when they were kind of doing the predicting stuff was fun. It was a good one. But again, I think this would have been a better sketch on a different night. I think this night just had Mm -hmm. a lot of good sketches. So it becomes a little ho-hum, but it's still a good sketch. It's just yeah. uh, a bit of a stack tonight, I feel like, tonight. And you know what it felt like? It almost felt a little bit like uh, Peter Venkman's show in Ghostbusters 2. Yes. Uh, that, yeah. <laughs> that's the vibe. The world of the psychic. World of the psychic. Oh, I thought it was funnier than that. But yeah, that, that's the vibe I got off it with those uh, weirdos, like, even though Peter Venkman was quite the weirdo on his own show. Afterwards, you know, I was reading on the internet today that uh, an article that encourages people to give Ghostbusters 2 uh, a bit of a second chance. Oh, I love it. 
uh, a lot of people are not like kind of poo poo it a bit. Uh, yeah, I thought it was great. Uh, the the guy, the the curator guy, steals the show. The uh, what's his name? Yonosh. Yonosh. Uh, Peter McNichol. Yonosh. Right. Yeah. Second time in four episodes, Peter McNichol has been mentioned. <laughs> yeah. We now have a Chiron. This person is celebrating a dental checkup. And we go to the good night. Steve thanks the cast. He muddles through some banter. Uh, and the cast comes right up, and uh, they're having a lot of fun there. I think they knew they had a good night. So, rating the host. Steve Martin. I thought he was excellent. This is his best one yet. He was in almost everything. He was all over the map for different characters. You know, in, in hindsight, we got a lot of his classics. We got Theodoric. We got Festrunk. We got King Tosh. Um, his monologue was on point. You know, most importantly, I, I lose track of this sometime with hosts, especially ones that are not typically funny. But Steve Martin was extremely funny in this episode. You know, when I, when I picture in my head, what is the quintessential Steve Martin episode? Well, it's it's got to be this one, certainly based on what we've seen so far. Uh, there is another one in the later on that that might rival it. We'll see. He uh, does absolutely excellent in this. And this is why he is cemented as one of the all time greats this episode if every host was this the show would go on forever yeah i agree i think he had a really stellar night i really enjoyed him this time around whereas last time i really did not enjoy him so um yeah kudos to him for sure great episode one of the classics definitely is best so far so many hits on one great cd uh as they'd say but yeah he blends right in Thought he was part of the cast. Might as well have been. He's on so damn much. So the music. And I mean, I should preface, I'm treating King Tut as something of a sketch, even though it, it, it did do well musically. The musical guest. It comes down to the Blues Brothers. I like the act. I love what they're doing with it. I, I And I love where they'll go with it. I appreciate how these two comics are, are trying to branch out and they're not laughably terrible. It's sort of like later we'll see Spinal Tap. So are these musical guests here on this show because of who they are? Are there maybe better, are there definitely better musical performers that could have this role? Absolutely. These guys are on the show. That's not a bad thing, though, uh, for me. I, I like how they're promoting their, you know, in-house talent who are branching out and trying something new and, and are good at it, too. That's the key part. I didn't love the second song selection. I thought the performance was great. I loved the first song, and I thought maybe the performance, at least the stage present performance, was a little weak. But again, I'm kind of forgiving of that because I enjoyed the set so much. And also the audience adored what they did with it. Dan plays a great harmonica. John is a very capable front man. And while he's not a true blues singer, he has the attitude and there's enough of it there to, uh, at this point, he does improve, but at this point he's, uh, he's really nailing what he's supposed to. Uh, this was very enjoyable for me. I really like the blues brothers. I know they're going to come back later and I will look forward to comparing that performance to this one. I, I bet I end up liking this one more. I think because it's not this fully fleshed out comedy act as well. But there, like you kind mm-hmm. of mentioned earlier, there's more reticence to the performance and it, it makes the whole experience more palatable to me. Uh, but I yeah. still just don't like blues music. That's all. I'm fine with them being the musical guest. I don't think that's that would be silly to have a problem with. Yeah, I, I enjoyed them, too. Um, it was a good my first official, I guess, uh, introduction to them. Um, I enjoyed both songs, and I'm happy that they're on the show. 
Um, uh-huh. I think it helps them not get so pigeonholed as just a one shot comedian thing. Like that's all they do. It kind of shows that they have a bit of range and a bit of other talents that they're hiding, which is uh, exciting for audience members to see what else other people will come up with. But yeah, I thought they were good. And, you know, I mean, just as well to put at this point, they are jamming with big names and, and it's probably cheap of me to say they're just comics singing because that's definitely not what they are. It's not like Adam Sandler and his Hanukkah song. You know, I'm glad we're all on the same page there what was the worst sketch of the night guys my least favorite was john and jane in bed uh telling each other that they were cheating uh, on each other uh as foreplay Uh i I just uh i didn't think there there was enough jokes there i don't know the sketch is fucking weird every time i try to think about it i seem to like not be able to quite put together why i don't like it i definitely don't is it, is <laughs> and then it, I just hit a wall mentally. And I can't is it just it. too hard for your brain to comprehend John and Jane working well together? <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, it, it's, it's a bit of a hard one tonight to find the worst one because there were so many good ones. Um, uh, maybe Harold and Betty in bed or the psychics um, telling the news. They were great characters. Um, I just found the concept a little weird to wrap my brain around, I guess, maybe. So I think I will go with the psychics tonight. Next week in review. Yeah. And that's what I went with too. You know, I'm sitting here, I'm looking at my, my Excel sheet that we have of all that I have of all the, uh, of all the bad sketches and neither love story nor next week in review. They're probably the best of this whole list of the, the, the shitty ones we've seen, you know? Yeah. So not terribly bad sketches, but just the weakest on a great night, I think. So what is the best of the night? I'm I'm half of me is sort of expecting we're all going to go one way, but I'm interested to see. Oh, I uh, I would pick the uh, the barber doctor, of course, uh, with all the bleeding, and Bill Murray having too much meat at the Vernal Fair, the Vernal, Vernal Equinox, getting hung upside down. Everybody, Lorraine dying, Jane being in a rage, Dan sitting there is just so well written. Everybody was so good in it. And it was laugh out loud funny for me. Sure. There's some affinity because it's a bit of a classic, I think, the characters and such. I think uh, my two wild and crazy guys, I think there are Chuck Little Swingers, I think was a uh, was one of the better skits tonight. But it was so hard because I'm like, but no, but King Tut was also excellent. The barber was hilarious. Uh, it's a tough night. There's a lot of good tonight. But yeah, I think I'll go with two wild and crazy guys. This is a very hard night to pick just one. And it's usually, you know, you might have two, maybe three, but there's about five you could go with in this night. Um, in the end, though, Matt, I did go with you. I went with Theodoric of York. There was just too much good there. Love the fest drunks as well, but uh, I did go with Theodoric. So who is your star of the night? Dan Aykroyd. Thought he was great in everything he was in. He and Steve Martin are a fantastic team. Uh, He was engaged. You know, he's good on point-counterpoint. He's coming out of it a little. And he was really good with Garrett. But yeah, he was, uh, I thought he seemed like the the captain of the cast tonight. Um, Yeah, for me, again, uh, everyone was on point and timing was good and characters were good tonight. Um, They like, I don't know, really rehearsed or something. It was it was a good night. You know, at one point I was like, oh, I think I want to give Garrett the nod tonight because he was so good, even though he wasn't like front and center. 
of a lot of things. Steve was great as host and great as the characters he played tonight. Jane was good, you know, guilt. Like, it, it was too hard. It's too hard. But I think I'll have to agree with Matt. I think Dan did a, a wonderful job tonight. I had to throw a curveball at myself. I had to go with Steve Martin. Um, I, I almost never do this. I like to keep it. But this was like a quintessential host appearance for me. Um, kind of the template, what I'd like all hosts to be. Um, the whole cast, though, absolutely stellar tonight. Not really any any clunkers in the lot. To me, the whole thing was anchored by Steve Martin. Um, and he was in everything except the uh, love story sketch, I think. So, uh, yeah, uh, big thumbs up for Steve. Could have been Dan for me. Could have been could have been almost anyone, really. Uh, good night. So overall, early on, season one, I said there'll never be a perfect show. And I still maintain that the show can never be perfect. However, tonight there was not one segment that I didn't like. Um, And even the weaker stuff for me was very, very, very good. Like the music, liked both the music and who was doing it. Even the Gary Weiss film I really enjoyed. I really liked the lockers and I liked how he did that. Weekend update was uh, not perfect, but it's the best. It's, it came down to like, what's my whole philosophy of this grading? And no, you can never have perfect, but this is as perfect as uh, Saturday Night Live can get. I gave this a 10 out of 10. Well, sir. <laughs> um, yeah, it was a great show. And, uh, and it was a great show for me. <laughs> and just my personality, <laughs> yeah. my yeah. interests. It had my dancing background. It had my history background. Um, it had music in the right spots for me tonight. Um, it was it was a really great show. So I also went high with this. I did not do 10 out of 10, but I did give it a 9.5. Pretty good. Pretty, pretty good. Didn't I didn't like everything. I didn't like that bed sketch. I didn't love the music. Uh, but that's fine. Like, that's subjective. I don't have to like the music. I, I wouldn't slight the show for me not liking the act. Uh, usually I'm cantankerous about the booking and that's all just the same kind of music over and over and over again. Uh, so different is okay with me. Shit, you know, you're right. It's hard to find fault if I, like, sit here and try to think about it and find fault. Yeah, I just don't like the Playboy humor. Uh, and I didn't like the Playboy magazine humor of that Gilda perfume sketch. And I didn't didn't like the style either in that bed sketch, uh, so it wasn't perfect for me, but obviously one of the best we've ever watched. So between those two sketches, I'm going to have to, I'll give it a 9. I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10. Not bad. Actually, great from you. It is. Um, yeah, Matt's 9, Rebecca's 9.5, my 10, averages it out on the 9.5. We are 0.7 higher than the Internet Movie Database, but the uh, IMDb ranks this as number one of season three and number three of all episodes done up to today. So this is number three. Yeah, I didn't think I'd ever do a a 10 out of 10, but uh, I, I just, you know, there's not too many ways an episode can be any better than this. Rebecca. Yes. Thank you very much for joining us tonight. We'll see you again in our a couple of our end, or, end of season special episodes we'll be doing. Yes, I'm looking forward to it. Thanks for having me once more. Matt, do you know who's hosting next week? Uh, I feel like they said on the way out, was it Richard Dreyfus? 
It is Richard Dreyfus, fresh off his best actor for The Goodbye Girl. And musical guests they didn't mention, but it's uh, Jimmy Buffett and, and Gary Tigerman. So we'll be back in about a week with Richard Dreyfus, but until then, I'll be looking for perfection here in SN Hell.